Before we look at uh, this portion of Scripture, let's pray uh, together. Let's ask God for his help. Lord, we do uh, indeed uh, fall before you uh, in humility, uh, aware of our deficiencies and our weaknesses. Uh, Our greatest need uh, this morning, our greatest need is to hear from you. Uh, to know your presence with us. So we ask that you would help us as we look at this uh, portion of Scripture. It's living, it's active. Uh, We pray, Lord, that you would unfold it before our very eyes. And we ask that you would show us Jesus. Uh, And we pray in our Lord's name. Amen. Okay, where to start? Where, uh, Where to start? It's the beginning of a new ministry. And so you can imagine... Can you? That over the last few weeks, that's the question that has been uh, banging about in my mind. Where do you begin? Where do you begin a new ministry? If, um, if I was to turn that over to you for a moment, um, and if you were to give that some thought, what would you say? What would you think would be a, a good opening theme for a new, a new ministry? What, where, where would you go, I wonder? What would you say? Maybe, maybe you would come back uh, with Christian unity, or maybe you would come back with, what would you go for? The importance of prayer. There's one, isn't it? Or maybe the priority of love. All of these are good, aren't they? That's maybe part of the problem. There's so many places you could go as an opening theme. Well, uh, this morning, I'm going to do something different, I suppose, This morning, I want us to do something fundamental. I guess what I want us to do is to begin this ministry as we mean to go on over the next number of weeks and the next number of months. And this morning, I want us to directly consider the Lord Jesus Christ. Or more precisely, okay, more exactly in our time together just now, I want us to consider the extent to which the Lord Jesus Christ suffered for you, for me, for his people. You got it? You with me? So the extent to which the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, he humbled himself in order to secure you, to secure you, to secure your salvation. So to consider Christ, directly to consider our Lord. To do that, what we're going to do just now is to think about and look at a a song from the Old Testament. An Old Testament song. So yes, it is a song that was written hundreds of years before Calvary. Hundreds of years before the cross. But it's a song, I firmly believe, that gives us almost unparalleled access into the inner experience of Jesus at Golgotha, a song that provides us with inner and access into the inner heart, the inner experience of Jesus Christ as he atoned for our sin and our wickedness. Okay, that's the plan set out for you. Uh, Can I encourage you all to, at this point, you're going to get really sick of me saying this, but can you have scripture open? And maybe even the boys and girls can have an eye on mum and dad's uh, copies of the Bible. The folk at home, please grab a copy of scripture. As we think about the first element that I want us to, 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 to linger on, and the first element is a critical experience. A critical experience that we see here. 
Okay. I'm pretty sure we all know what it's like, do we? You're in a car. You've been driven along the back roads, not in the city, but in the back roads, driven along. And all of a sudden, a deer jumps out in front of you. I'm pretty sure it didn't happen to, to me all that often in London, surprisingly enough. But I'm pretty sure we know what it's like. I can remember that happening a number of times in my youth. Deer jumps out in front of us. Well, in a strange sense this morning, as you and I, as we pick up the Bible, as we open the Bible, in a strange sense, something like that actually happens. Because if you look uh, before verse 1, if you look at actually the, the prefix or the introduction to the psalm, now what does it say? You see what's mentioned? This mention is made of a doe of the dawn or of the morning, or it depends what translation you've got, or deer in the morning. So we are scratching our heads a little bit. I think, well, what? why has this deer jumped out of a, at us this morning? Well, it could be, right? It could be as the NIV has it. So it could be that this is an indication of the tune to which the psalm in its original setting was sung. So you get the idea. So Psalm 22, not to the tune of Amazing Grace or not to Crimmins, but actually to the tune Doe of the Dawn or Deer of the Morning. Could be that. I'm not so sure. I think more likely what we've got there is an indication of actually the central theme of the psalm. Because you, you need to appreciate this. Please get this. That the word Doe in the original language, is just incredibly close to the word for crying out for help. And are you with me? That that seems the most suitable idea and title for this psalm. Did you follow the reading? What's this psalm about? Here we read of a figure, a person, who is forsaken by God, abandoned by God. In this psalm, Psalm 22, you're confronted with the abject horror a person goes through. Yes, he, he's, he's dealing with a difficult situation, but it's the horror of going through that situation separate to God, apart from God. You get a door of the dawn, the central theme. No, no, crying out to God for help. Now, you can argue with me about this later on if you want to. But uh, I'm a firm believer. Do you know when you and I are dealing with a psalm? Firm believer that if you and I can grasp the arrangement or the structure of a psalm, it actually really helps us to understand what's going on and understand the meaning of it. You can fight me on that later or argue with me at a later point if you, you want to. But I, I believe that. So I want to point you just to a couple of things about the arrangement of this psalm. So if you've, got, if you've got it there, first of all, I want you to notice with me the main division. The boys and girls can notice this as well, the sort of main division. So I want you to remember that the psalm 22 is in two parts so boys and girls, you will remember that for the rest of your life, won't you? Right, Psalm 22 is in two parts. Okay, so what have you got? So you've got, the first part is verse 1, all the way through to verse 21a. So the beginning of verse 21. Do you see it there? That is one big chunk. 
Then, what do you have? Then you've got a hinge. Okay? So the last bit of verse 21, that's a pivot. A little hinge. And then that is followed from verse 22 to the end by the second part. So everyone's got it, do we? We've got it. People at home have got it too. Psalm 22, two parts. 1 to 21a, hinge. 22 to the end. Fine. But... Since in this, under this heading just now, we're just focusing on the first half of the psalm, the first half, what I want you to really appreciate is that in the first half, it is almost as though the psalmist is playing drafts. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? The first half, it's almost like the psalmist is playing drafts. The boys and girls, you've got it. We all know what drafts is. You play draft, not chess, but drafts. But you're also wondering, that you're wondering if I've lost my marbles too. And that's saying that the psalmist is playing draft. What do I mean by that? Well, we all know. How do you take an opponent's piece in drafts? You, you, know, you know it. You remember it, do you? From your youth, maybe. You're jumping over the opponent's piece to take the piece. Do you remember that? You jump over it as you make your way up the, the, the boards. You jump over it. That's what the psalmist is doing. And in this first half, what he seems to do is he jumps over certain portions of the first half. He jumps over, but he does that in order to jump onto what I'm going to call three sections of misery. You follow? He jumps over certain parts to land on three sections of misery. And will you stick with me as I just point those sections of misery out to you? You will, won't you? First, look at the beginning of the psalm. Look at verses 1 and 2. Let's call this the absence of God or the silence of God. Do you see verses 1 and 2? Have you got it there? And maybe, you could could maybe argue that it doesn't come through all that clearly in our versions of Scripture here. Let me tell you what you've got in front of you. You've got three cries to God, successive cries three successive cries to God, and they're all asking the same question. So this psalm begins with three cries, God, where are you? That's it. This psalm begins that way three times. God, why? Why are you not answering my prayer? Do do you get the idea? Do, Do you follow it? The protagonist, the psalmist here, he's going through something really difficult, a horrible plight, but it's a plight made infinitely worse by the, by the apparent silence of God. God not saying anything. God not answering anything. But remember the drafts. So what does the psalmist do? He now jumps from there, verse 1 and 2, and now follow it. He jumps on to verses 6 to 8. Now you get it there in the text. We've had absence. I think we could call this Abuse. Now, can you see? If you look at it and skim it, verse 68, can you see why we can call it abuse? Look what happens. Look at verse 7. So, this abandonment by God, the silence of God, now leads into mistreatment by whom? By, by, by men. Do you see it? Verse 68, there's ridicule and it's wagging heads and there's mockery and there's derision. And if you've really had your porridge and your coffee this morning, maybe, and you're on the ball, maybe you notice that this is ridicule from people who use the covenant name of God. What's that? 
This is mockery from supposedly godly people. Derision from people who are supposed to be following God and don't for a second think this is just insignificant. I mean, this is awful for this man. Awful, so awful. Look at the beginning of verse 6. He's subhuman. That's how he feels. He feels he's not real. I am a worm. I'm a worm and not a man. Now, if you are with me, you can already see, can you, that there is an intensification of the horror. Do you see how it's building up, friends? Do you? You know, that silence, that absence into abuse. Wait. Because the psalmist jumps now to verse 12 to 18. And it's not absence. It's not abuse. It's attack. Um, When Catherine, this is Catherine, when Catherine and myself, when we were in London, we, uh, we lived just a short distance from a woodland walk, okay, in a place called Epping Forest. So in the heart, the busyness of London, we were in the northeast, so we could go out into a woodland walk. Does that sound nice to you? A short distance to a woodland walk? Well, it was. It was most of the time. But sometimes... Um, the local farmer, what he would do in his wisdom uh, would be to, to allow his cattle uh, to, to roam free in the field and in this woodland walk. Still maybe doesn't sound too bad. <laughs> what a nightmare, honestly. You can maybe imagine it. So me going out with my little girls for a walk, you know, walking along, walking along this forest, walk, you turn the corner in the forest and uh, a couple of yards away is a bull, you know, a massive bull with enormous horns and I'm holding the girls and I can feel them shaking and I'm shaking as, as well. Now, every time that I've read this portion of scripture in the last few weeks is that experience is front and center for me. And maybe you can see why. In verses 12 to 18. Because now this psalmist, this man, is being attacked. But do you notice how he describes his attackers? What language does he use? He uses the metaphors of of animals. He describes them, these attackers, as animals. Look at it with me. Verse 12. You've got bulls of Bashan. Bashan was renowned for having, you know, its massive livestock. Then look at verse 13. If the bulls didn't sound too bad, look at verse 13. Lions. These attackers, lions, tearing their prey. Look at verse 16. Do you see it's dogs, not uh, chihuahua or something but but a wild dog you know these savage dogs that used to hunt in packs friends do you see do you feel it do you recognize it like the mockery of men has morphed into something much much more sinister this psalmist is not as i was just intimidated This psalmist is besieged by these men and it is a situation made all the more terrifying by the continued silence, the continued absence of the God that he serves and the God that he loves. Now, maybe uh, you remember how I begun the sermon this morning, do you? What did I say we were going to do? What was the promise? The promise is that we were consider 
Christ and directly. As dodgy as this sounds, we ought not to rush to do that. Now, does that sound a bit worrying to you? We've inducted a man who just said we ought not to rush straight to the cross. Maybe actually you see what I mean. Friends, if we just sprint to Calvary, if we skim over the material that we've got in front of us, do you see the danger with that? We will fail to do justice to this psalm in its original setting. We'll fail to do justice to why Jesus appropriated this psalm. And we will fail to see why this psalm applies to you to the people of God, to to me, to you, to the covenant community. And you recognize we ought not to do that. We can't just skim over this. So I wonder this this morning. As Chris came up and he read out this psalm, as we've looked at this, for you at this point in your life, is it like looking at a mirror? Like are there people here and people at home who who are going through such awful situations, traumatic things in their life that actually reading this looks like this is your experience or part of your experience, hint of your experience staring back at you. After all, let's face it, as Christians, we are not immune. We are not strangers to suffering. All of us, every one of us, in this room, at home, every one of us, set to go through really tough times of stress and, and trial and as as uncommon as it is. Isn't it true that sometimes these times of difficulty, they can be made more intense by the apparent silence of God? Times we go through great difficulty with family or finances or health and we're crying out, God, where are you? Why are you not answering our our prayers? And 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 he seems, seems deaf to our cry. Well, if that is you in any way today, listen, listen, there is help and there's help here, right here. Because here is my question for you, all of you. Did you notice, remember the drafts? Did you notice what the psalmist jumps over to get to his three portions of misery? Did anyone get it? Did you notice what he jumps over? Listen to me. Each portion of pain, oh, it's so beautiful, hear it. Each portion of pain is followed immediately by an expression of trust in his God. Each time there's misery, each time is succeeded by fidelity and love and worship. Look at it with me. Look at verse three. Look at, do you remember the one and two? Do you remember the beginning with the absence of God? Look how it's followed. Immediately it's followed by the psalmist seeking solace in God's character. Immediately goes to God's holiness. Immediately goes to God's faithfulness. Then look at verse 9. You remember the second area, do you? The ridicule, the abuse, the derision. Look, look, look how it's followed. Immediately he meditates on God's care. I love verse 9. Don't you? For you, Christian friend, in verse 9, God is portrayed to you as a midwife. God, a midwife, ready, waiting for his covenant people to provide them care from minute one. And then there's no one who forgets that section of attack. 
right? 12 to 18, the bulls, you remember? The dogs, the lions. Look how it's followed, verse 19. Immediately he cries out to God. He continues, he continues to look to God in faith and trust. Listen, listen. Those three my sections, my pain, my agony, those three I sections immediately followed with but God. But God. My misery, but God. Friend, are you going through a hard time this morning? Is it made worse by an apparent absence of God? Then hear me when I say to you, here's a psalm for you. You cherish the psalm. You take the psalm home with you. You pray through the psalm. You memorize the psalm. You study the psalm and you wander not away from a God who does love you and who is with you. Second, so we've seen a critical experience. Second, they want us to think about a Christ-centered re-reading. A Christ-centered re-reading. Okay, now when it comes to preaching um, in churches like ours, I don't know how we would describe our church. What we call it? What we call it? A gospel-believing, Bible-teaching, evangelical church, reformed church, whichever, Presbyterian church, the list goes on, doesn't it? Uh, however we would describe it. One common objection from liberal Christianity to churches like ours is that we overdo, apparently, we overdo what is called typology. So what's that? So the accusation against us is that churches like ours exaggerate how the Old Testament points us to Jesus. Oh, we exaggerate. We make too much of the fact that, you know, the Old Testament points us and how it points us uh, to our Lord. That's an accusation that is leveled against us, no matter who you are this morning, no matter who's joining us, no matter how new you are uh, to an evangelical church, I very much doubt that anyone is going to level that accusation against us when it comes to Psalm 22, right? No one's going to no one's going to doubt that Psalm 22 points us forward to Jesus. Now, why can we say that? Why can we say that? What do we know in here? We know, you know, not only do the New Testament authors take the language of Psalm 22, and what do they do with this language? They point us to Jesus. They use this language of Jesus, don't they? So Matthew does it, Mark does it, Luke does it, John does it, the author of Hebrews does it. Take Psalm 22, points to Jesus, okay? We know that. What else do we know, friends? Come on, it gets even better than that, doesn't it? We also know, we also know that our Lord on that cross, our Lord at Calvary, he takes the words of Psalm 22 upon his own lips. Isn't that right? Now, wait, wait. What words? On the cross, what words? You would say back to me, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Would you? Yep. The point that I'm making here is that those are not just any old words. Those are the first words. Those are the summary words of the psalm. It's not just that Jesus quotes verse 8 or verse 9. He quotes the first words, the summary verses. What does that tell us? Surely that Jesus Christ is actually appropriating 
all of this psalm to speak of his inner experience in redemption. Now, I, uh, I don't know some of you. I really hope that is going to change over the, the next few weeks. I certainly cannot know who is joining us uh, online uh, this morning. But if you are a believer, if Christ has redeemed you, if you are in him, and can I urge you to revisit some of what we've just thought about in relation to your Savior? I ask you, can you, can you not begin with me to, to see how Psalm 22, what does it do? It sheds light on what Jesus Christ endured for you to bear your sin. And just go back in your minds to that first area. What was it? The absence of, 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 the absence of God, the silence of God. I mean, if you, if you are a Christian... I mean, when you look at the beginning of this psalm, do you not wonder at what Christ endured for for you? I mean, surely you, you see that there is at the cross something of the most horrific paradox for Jesus. Do you see it? The Son of God and the Father of God. And what does he cry out? He's crying out, my God. Do you see the intimacy, the trinitarian intimacy? My God, but then why have you forsaken me? The paradox, there is a, a separation. It's almost as though at the cross, the Father who loves his Son. And he's holding himself back from delivering the one that he loves so much. Do you see it? There is at the cross, in reality, a circumcision, a spiritual circumcision. You see, don't you? Christ Jesus cut off, cut off, thrown away, discarded for you, for me. Do you see the, the absence here? It doesn't stop. What was the second area? The abuse. The Lord Jesus Christ endured a Golgotha abuse, the likes of which you cannot imagine and you shall, Christian friend, never, ever know. And you just have to, come on, you just have to linger on the, the condescension of what was involved there. Who's at the cross? You know, we talk about that yonder hill. Who's there? And, and we marvel and we think, the eternal one. I mean, the creator. And what does he do? He so lowers himself that he willingly receives ridicule. You know, mockery. The creator being spat upon by his creations, by Romans and soldiers and, and scribes. This is Jesus and he's enduring the sharp end of human rebellion against gods. And it's a situation made all the worse by the continued forsakenness of his father, the continued abandonment of his God. What is it? Absence, abuse, an attack, attack. And when we get to, to verses 12 to 18, I'm sure you recognize a problem, do you? Do you see the problem? A problem of the original context. Now, what does the, the title of this psalm tell you? It tells you that this was a psalm of David, doesn't it? A Davidic psalm. David, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David has penned this psalm. What's the problem? Come on. 
What's the problem here? What's the obvious thing for me to say? See, when it gets to 12 to 18, David endured nothing like that in his life. Isn't that a bit of a problem? Isn't that an obvious thing to say? So you might come back at me and say, but David in 1 Samuel 18, you know, he's attacked by Saul and there's a few things like that that, that go on, but not, not, not that. 12 to 18, you understand that that is an execution that has been described to you. Do, do you pick up on, do you see some of the language here? It's an execution. He's laid in the dust of death. His heart is melted. He is pierced here. So do, do you see what's happening? David, as he writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's looking where? He's looking ahead. David is looking to another Davidic king, one in his line, one that was to come, and then we stop. And isn't it something to consider that section 12 to 18 in relation to your Lord and Savior? Isn't it something to consider that? Like, yeah, okay, you say, you say what? what? Bulls of Bashan and being attacked and your Savior, the Son of God, being, being abused by these bulls and, and that's fine. And yes, look at that for a phrase. On the lips of Jesus, I can count my bones. I, I can see my bones. You know, the reality of Roman scourging. Yeah, okay. But I would ask you to look at verse 18. Look at verse 18. Consider this from the standpoint of Calvary. They divide my garments among them. They're casting lots for my clothes. Now, what do you do with that verse? What's the first thing that comes into your mind? You're anything like me. All we do is, oh, I know, that's quoted in the New Testament. You know, or maybe we're clever. We say, oh, well, we know that all of the gospel authors quote that. Casting, dividing, oh, come on. I mean, can we not enter in just for a moment into the unspeakable horror of that? Christ's perspective, Christ looking on at the Romans and the, the people around him at the cross, Christ enduring this pain. And what is this? Do you see others there gleefully, gleefully planning for your impending death? Can you imagine the trauma of that? Imagine how horrific that is. They are acting as though our Lord is, has already passed away and they could not care less. Friends, what you are shown in this psalm is a picture of the inner turmoil, the trauma, the most awful reality of Jesus' death. And it's a death all for you. And it is a death all without the presence of the Father that he loves so dear. If you are a beneficiary of that saving death, surely your heart is moved to gratitude. Surely your heart is moved to praise. But then we'll end with a third thing. We've seen a critical experience and we've seen a Christ-centered rereading but I really long for you to see a call to praise. A call to praise. Because if you were listening to Chris, and maybe the boys and girls spent extra time and extra energy listening to the Bible reading this morning, I hope you did. But if you did, you maybe noticed that there is in this psalm the most abrupt change of tone 
Did we notice that? Did we pick up on? From, uh, from verse 22 onwards, all of a sudden, so we've had all these sections of misery, haven't we? All of a sudden, it changes. And there's joy suddenly, and there's, there's delight, and there's worship. And you can take it from me that it's kind of confusing. Okay, I look a lot older than I did uh, 10 days ago when I started on the sermon. It's a bit confusing. Uh, so I want you to do, this is what I'm going to do, just as we end, I just want to point you just three details to notice about that, that, that section. So if you do this with me, please, look to the last line of verse 21. I want to point you to the moment of deliverance. Okay, so look at, do you get that verse? I'll give you a second. Verse 21b, folk at home do the same. So what does the, the, the NIV have here? So the NIV has this, I think. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Now, the, the other, the, all of our versions vary at this point. But you, you get the idea. NIV says, save me. Save me. Save me from the horns. Now, haha. It's not quite right. It's beautiful. Listen. In the Hebrew, instead of an appeal. Now you can see that that's an appeal. Save me. Instead of an appeal, what you've actually got at that point is talk of a completed action. Now try and put the pieces to the jigsaw. So there's a completed action talking about here. And then the verb. Now the NIV footnote, if you're using the footnotes in the NIV, it gives the game away here. Because the verb isn't so much save, listen to this, the verb is answered. Can you put the pieces of the jigsaw together? If not, can I tell you what happens here? At this moment, our psalmist, our protagonist can cry out of a moment of deliverance. Do you see it? Do you know what he's saying? You have answered me. At last, you've answered me. Do you see what he's doing? He's looking back to the beginning of the psalm, which began, why have you not, same verb, answered me? Why have you not heard me? Now we get through the end, this hinge, and he's saying, but you have, you have answered me. There is a seemingly impossible deliverance. And isn't that just a beautiful thing to consider in relation, not just to us, but to consider in relation to Jesus Christ? Because do you see where you're standing? Do you see where you've been pointed to? It's not just to Good Friday. You've been pointed there in the second half through Good Friday, and you've been pointed to Easter Sunday. We're being shown the Father's work because he's done the impossible thing. Yes, there was a death. Yes, there was an execution. But he's delivered the protagonist here. We stand at this point in the morning light of Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead, the moment of deliverance. But then, second thing, remember I said three, second thing to notice is the response to this deliverance that this psalmist calls for. We, I think, is true in this church, as it is in most of the churches in our denomination. But we talk a lot about the Word, don't we? We do. We talk a lot about the Word of God. I think we understand the nature of preaching really well in our denomination, I hope, don't we? That not all preaching, but when preaching is correctly biblical, 
what happens. This is not, if, if that were to happen, it is not just the word of man, it is the word of the Almighty. We understand the nature of preaching. There's a moment in the psalm, <laughs> there's a moment in the psalm where it's almost like you hear directly from Christ. You know, there's a moment in this psalm where the word of God is almost, you know, you can, is almost tangible. You're not just audible. You always can grab on it. Look at verse 23 to hear it, not just to see it, but to hear it. Because yes, in verse 22, this psalmist, he cries out and he's going to praise his father for this deliverance. But what does he call for? Look, this chief protagonist, he's been executed. He is now delivered and he says, he cries out, you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. You know, feel the weight of it? You know, hear it in a sense. Do you see what's going on there? This is our savior, surely. This Sam is the protagonist and he's addressing us. Looking ahead, looking to the covenant community, looking to his people and imploring us to praise God for this great act of deliverance. But... Maybe this morning that's really difficult for you. You know, maybe you're at the, I hope, tail end of a time of really a wilderness spiritual experience. Has it been really tough to pray? Tough to read the Bible? Even coming to church here, how many times do we, do we think of Christ? You've gone through a difficulty, yes, but it's taken a spiritual toll. Maybe that is you. If it is you struggling, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, the reasoning he gives you here. It's amazing. Look, not only verse 26, you are promised everlasting life. You, Christian friends, are promised that one day you will eat with, you will feast with this one who has been delivered. You will eat with him. You will see him as he is. Not just that, verse 27, there's a cosmic dimension. He promises because of this work of deliverance, there will be a day when everyone, every family on earth, either willingly or under duress, will worship the central character here, this one who has been delivered. Does that lying ahead of you, does it not spark your heart to praise? And then we end. We end, okay? The third detail. I just want you to look at the last line. <laughs> The last line. Uh, yeah. I want you to think about how abrupt it is. <laughs> what does it say? What have you got there? The last line. For he's done it. Now that's, a, that's an abrupt line, isn't it? Especially when you appreciate there's not even a verb. Come on, we want a verb, you know. There's not a verb. All it is is he's done it. He's done it. And perhaps we could uh, sit in church this morning scratching our heads. You know, lots of people have done it that last line, but I don't think we're going to scratch our heads. Because kneeling as we are at the foot of the cross, armed as you and I are with something of an idea of what Jesus Christ has gone through for, for you and for me, and firm in this knowledge, everything depended on Christ completing that work, didn't it? Everything. Your salvation, your eternal future, my future, didn't just have to suffer. That had to be completed, didn't it? That had to be finished. That had to be done. Armed with that, we'll not be confused here. We rejoice at that last line. 
when we realize that in the Hebrew, it could be equally rendered, not for he has done it, but the last line of the psalm. It is finished. Friends, in this psalm, we are brought into an experience to see something of what Christ has endured. We are implored to worship God. So I ask you, if you're not a Christian, you know, who, who knows who's joining, right? I don't know where you stand before God, but if you are not a Christian, if you came to this service unfamiliar with Jesus, surely at this point you see your need to respond to the preaching of the gospel. If that's you, will you not respond by repentance and faith, given all that Christ, the very Son of God, has endured? Will you not look to Him, bow before Him, and believe in the one who was for you, for me, the one who was slain. That's it, isn't it? He was slain for our sin. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we worship you for the psalm. We thank you, truly we thank you for the psalm. We thank you that there are foreshadows, pointers from the Old Testament that give us indication of the meaning of the cross, that it was bearing our guilt, but also for the nature and the experience of what Christ has endured. Lord, we want to respond as we are commanded to do in, in praise. We may not be able to sing to you just now, but we do in our hearts praise you. We praise you for Christ. We praise you that you have done it all. You have done all the work of redemption. May your name be praised. Amen.